Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Today, I'm excited to welcome Mike Harney, Senior Vice President and Head of Public Affairs at Clear, the secure identity company who you've probably seen at airports and arenas. In his nearly two decades in government, Mike has worked in the House of Representatives, the Senate, the White House, and the Commerce Department. His journey started on Capitol Hill as a legislative correspondent for Alabama Congressman Bud Kramer. He then joined the office of Congressman Patrick Kennedy of Rhode Island, where he was a legislative assistant and policy advisor. In 2009, Mike transitioned to the Senate, where he joined the office of newly elected Senator Kay Hagan of North Carolina. There, Mike served as legislative director, deputy chief of staff, and chief of staff. In 2015, after a tough loss in North Carolina, Mike joined the Obama White House, where he oversaw congressional relations for the office of the U.S. Trade Representative. Mike returned to the Senate in 2016 to serve as chief of staff for Virginia Senator Mark Warner. And in 2021, Mike was recruited into the Biden administration to serve as chief of staff at the U.S. Department of Commerce, a position he held until earlier this year. I really enjoyed my conversation with Mike, and I hope you do too. We recorded this episode on Friday, October 6th. Mike Harney, welcome to Staffer. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here and uh, very much appreciate you inviting me and you doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, as you may know, I like to start my interviews by asking people a little bit about themselves, sort of, you know, where they grew up and what life was like. So can you tell us about yourself? Yeah, for sure. Thanks. So uh, I grew up in North Alabama. My dad was an engineer. Uh, Mom was a school teacher. And, you know, what I tell people who ask about my career in politics is, you know, I grew up basically totally disinterested in politics. Uh, You know, my folks, folks are people who stay up with current events and all that, but it wasn't like politics was discussed around the dinner table. It wasn't a big part of our lives growing up. We weren't sort of politically active. So, uh, so anyway, I grew up in Alabama. I went to college in North Carolina, majored in math, and expected that I was going to be a, a high school math teacher for the rest of my life, all the way through college and into the beginning of my career. Well, I love it. I come from a family of teachers. So, um, is that right? As happy as I am that you have a career in politics, um, there's nothing better than you know, and more honorable than being a teacher. I agree with that. So my wife is a teacher. She and I met when I during my brief uh, career as a teacher. It was the the greatest thing that came out of my time teaching. Certainly, uh, the the learning that the students experienced probably didn't rank up that high. <laughs> and so uh, the work that she does, she's great at it. Uh, and uh, I'm in awe of her uh, every day. So, OK, so you weren't interested in politics. You go to college with the intention of becoming a teacher and you are a teacher for a couple of years. How did things change? How did you decide, yeah. all right, I need to dive into politics? It's a funny story. So uh, I, I, as I said, I taught high school math and economics. I did that for two years at a boarding school in Connecticut. And I went there expecting that that was going to be you know, my career. Like I said, my mom was a teacher. As a kid, it's like the adults you know are teachers, right? So those are the people you admire and look up to. And so I thought that's what I was going to do. As it turns out, I was really bad at it. I wasn't a very good teacher. <laughs> You know, I was 22 years old. I, I'm not sure I was really a grown up yet. The idea that I was teaching, you know, AP statistics to kids that were, you know, three years younger than me, four years younger than me was was a little bit silly. So I wasn't great at it. Uh, didn't love it. Uh, I think I would love it now. But as you know, at that age, I just wasn't ready for that. So the the story of the way I got into politics um, is that 
I recall like specifically during my second year teaching, we had some some break coming up, Thanksgiving break, something like that. And I needed to read, I like didn't wanted something to read over the break. So I was in the school library and I had a book just kind of laying out, like sitting on top of a bookshelf that was, uh, that you may remember. It's a book called All Too Human by George Stephanopoulos. Oh, I read it. And okay, so it was like, a, people ask me sometimes if a book ever changed my life. And I tell them that book did change my life. It was a good book. I'm not saying it's not like war and peace or anything, but I, for some reason, I picked it up, I read it, and I just vividly remember the description, you know, it was, it was sort of Stephanopoulos talking about his time in government up to uh, his time in the Clinton White House. But the way he described working on the Hill, he had been, a, I think, in L.A. and a chief of staff for, you know, his hometown congressman. And just the way he described that work seemed super interesting to me. And I don't really know why. But it just seemed like interesting, exciting, diverse, sort of like fun work. And so as I was trying to figure out what to do next with my career after I sort of decided teaching wasn't going to be for me, I did what everybody does when they're 24 and doesn't know what to do with their career, which is I went to grad school. <laughs> and I went to get a master's degree in economics. And I, I kind of decided to try to land in D.C. because that, like, again, like the description of all of that just seems so interesting to me. So. I went to American University to get a master's in economics, which I never finished. But in the course of doing that, I, just, I had some time on my hands. I decided to intern on the Hill. I got an internship with uh, Senator Tom Carper. Ah, yes. Who, in the same hard office, you know, 20 years ago that he's in today. And, and from then was off and running. I loved it. It was super interesting. Everybody that I worked with seemed really smart. And so, yeah, never looked back. I love that. And, you know, something about George Stephanopoulos, I, you know, I grew up as a kid who loved current events and and did, was very interested in politics. But I thought that the way to be in politics was, you know, to be an elected official. I didn't realize that there, you know, was this whole operation behind them, you know, uh, officially. And then, of course, a whole political business, um, you know, supporting elections. And it was George Stephanopoulos that was the first famous staffer that ever, you know, like came across my radar screen. I remember he was on in People Magazine during the 92 campaign, right? He became famous. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, there are people behind the people. Right, right. Uh, absolutely. We're dating ourselves talking about our <laughs> collection of George Stephanopoulos and now he inspired us, but, but it's totally <laughs> true. And, you know, the other thing I didn't appreciate uh, when I first came into government was, how much work goes into running these Senate offices or you know, I assumed, I assumed even when I went in to be an intern that there would be a ha you know, a dozen of us and we would all just be hanging out with the Senator all the time and advising him on, you know, matters of state. And, uh, of course, like it doesn't go that way. So. <laughs> so, okay. So you've been, you were interning, uh, for Senator Carper and you eventually get a job on the house side with Correct. Congressman Bud Kramer of Alabama as a legislative correspondent. So yeah. was he your hometown uh, congressman? He was. Yeah. Um, yeah. He nice. represented North Alabama. Love yeah. it. Okay. So tell me how that came to be. And then I have a question. So, I mean, I tell this story only because I think it, it having come so long so far now in my own career, I, I, I recognize how unusual and exceptional it was, although at the time I didn't. I, you know, I interned for Carper. I wanted to find a full-time job on the Hill. Naturally, I went to you know, Congressman Kramer is my hometown congressman, and he had a chief of staff at the at the time, a guy named Carter Wells, who is back in North Alabama now. 
And I remember going to see him and he was so much better to me than I had any reason to deserve at the time. Remember, I talked to him in the fall and he was like, well, I don't have anything right now. But, you know, if if you're still looking at the beginning of the year, come back and let me know and I'll give you an internship here and I'll pay you a little bit, which at the time was unheard of. You know, nobody paid interns at that time. Yeah. And, and I'll help you find something. And so sure enough, end of the year came. I didn't have another job. I reached out to Carter again, asked him if the offer was still good. He said it was. Later that week, I was in the office. I think he was going to pay me like $500 a month, which, you know, it's not a lot of money, but it's more than zero. And, you know, then within probably two or three weeks, somebody in the office left. There was an opening and he just slotted me right into it. And so, you know, I really owe so much to Carter for doing that. So many people came to me in the time I was on the Hill looking for jobs and I tried always to be accommodating and you know give them the best advice i could but you know carter went above and beyond for me and so i owe him a lot and as you know like once you get that first job you know it's kind of easy to to keep moving yeah Um, but getting that first job is the hardest thing and so so that's how that came to be well um you were then working uh as a legislative correspondent for as we said bud kramer who was one of the original blue dog democrats so Literally. Right? He founded the yeah. Blue Dogs. Okay, yeah. right. So he he represents a district that is very hard for a Democrat to hold. And you went on to work for other members who were representing purple states or even red states when you were working for them. Uh, both Kay Hagan, uh, senator of North Carolina, and Mark Warner of Virginia. So, you know, what from your early experiences did you learn about operating in a frontline office um, about how Democrats can survive and thrive in red or purple states and districts. A few things I'd share about that. One is every one of the three people you mentioned, Senator Warner, obviously Senator Hagan, rest in peace, and, and Congressman Kramer, understood their state and district extraordinarily well. They were extremely retail focused. You know, even Senator Hagan, Senator Warner, those are states with about 10 million people but extremely retail, very in touch with what was going on on the ground. And the most important thing for all of them, Kramer kind of reveled in this in a way that maybe the others don't, but, you know, the the pressure when you're in D.C. to always fall in line along with the party is so intense. And, you know, back home in a, in a red district or a red state or even a purple state, you know, it's not always the right choice. It's not always the best way to represent your constituents. It's not always the best politics, but the pressure to do it is just so intense. And, you know, from those early days working for for Congressman Kramer, like I said, Jim, you were, I mean, you were on the Hill at, at the time. You probably remember Kramer kind of reveled in uh, <laughs> being misaligned with the National yeah. Party. I think right. he yeah. like, enjoyed it. Um, you know, uh, Senator Warner and Senator Hagan, of course, are, are, you know, are team players and and tried hard to to be helpful to their colleagues. But, you know, the ability to see beyond the through DC narrative and understand what your job is in terms of your own constituents and, you know, having the sort of courage, courage and bravery to speak up when you feel like you need to is so important. And I've seen, I feel like I've seen a lot of people representing purple districts, purple states sort of lose sight of that. And, um, and frankly, it's an easy way to lose your job. Yeah. And so uh, I, I I learned that from all of them. Uh, you know, we can talk about it. I'm sure that, you know, in 2014, we lost the, hey, Senator Hagan, you know, lost her race then. 
Uh, I was with her right up until the very end. And, you know, I remember every time in that campaign, we, you know, broke with the national party, broke with the, you know, the president at the time, you know, it was painful, a lot of anger at us, a lot of recriminations. And, and at the end of the campaign, my only regret was that we didn't do more of it. You know, mm. it, people in people in North Carolina appreciated it. And that's what they wanted to see. Yeah, that was I mean, that was just a very tough cycle for Democrats. And that election was so close. Um, part of working in politics is losing. You know, I mean, we all we all get into it because we want to make change and contribute to this great national enterprise of our democratic project. But, you know, sometimes if you're in it long enough, you're going to experience loss. Um, what what advice do you have or did you give to people who, you know, experience that loss with you or will experience loss in their careers about how to pick up the pieces when it feels like your world has just shattered? I, look, in some ways, losing that race in 2014 was, I think, probably professionally really good for me. Uh, obviously, I, I would have preferred that we win. Of course. Loved Senator Hagan so much. She was a great senator. Uh, and so would have loved her to have another term. But, you know, it, losing does give you perspective that is easy, especially you know, I came on the Hill in 2005. And as you'll remember, you know, 06 was a huge cycle for Democrats. 08 was a big cycle for Democrats. And then, you know, 2010 and, and 2012 were more challenging. But, you know, I wasn't working for somebody who was who was running in those cycles. And so it's easy, you know, when you feel like you've only had success to, to convince yourself that you're responsible for all of that. And that like your unique talents are the reason that you win all the time. And it just doesn't work that way. Like yeah. you said it in politics, like you're going to win sometimes, you're going to lose sometimes. Your ability to affect outcomes, especially in terms of campaigns and elections, is within a fairly narrow band and there are big forces. Um, and so the perspective and probably humility that that gave me, I think, was was really, really valuable. Um, in terms of advice, you know, what I think I discovered in losing that race in 14 was that you know, I had a lot more friends than I thought I did. You know, and uh, I remember like vividly the people who were who were very helpful to me after we lost the race, um, people who reached out and offered to get coffee or make connections as I was thinking about the next thing. And so, you know, taking advantage of that, um, people are willing to help. You know, those of us who've been around for a long time, like we've all been on that end of it. We all know how it is. So, you know, as you go through that, take people up on the offer. It's also a rare opportunity, I'd say, when you you know, when you lose a race like that, when we lost in 2014, I think people felt like we had done a really good job in the campaign. Yeah. You know, we, it was a well-run race. Yes. All the, most of the credit for that goes to our, our campaign manager, Preston Elliott, who's for my money, the best manager in the country. He did a great job, but we, we walked away with our reputations more or less intact personally. And you're in a situation where you're looking for a new job and everybody knows it and there's like no shame in it. And so having the opportunity to talk to a lot of people, to really like put some thought into what you might want to do next, you know, when you're looking for a job, when you already have a job, it's a little harder. You have to be more discreet probably. And so, you know, if you're put in that position, it's not going to happen that many times in your life and you should take advantage of it and really talk to a lot of people and, and think long and hard, like what, what you want your next steps to be. And people will be helpful. People want to be helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, you've had the opportunity to work for a lot of different members 
And I was just speaking with uh, someone else who was also a, a former chief of staff uh, to two senators. And he was making the point that, you know, chief of staff jobs, they're always different because the member is different. And you have to orient your, you know, your staffing and the team around them to maximize their strengths, compensate for any, you know, needs or weaknesses that they have, et cetera. So how did you, you know, and how do you think about that when supporting principles? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's, you say somebody did it for two senators. There's not that many of us who have done it for You're two right. senators. So yeah. I, I bet I could guess from a pretty short list. <laughs> I'm sure you could. Uh, people. Look, what I would say, is you're absolutely right. You know, these offices are sort of driven by and ultimately take on the character and personality of the principal, inevitably. And so they're all different for that reason. And the senators, House members, you know, principals in general, they all need different things from the staff. They all want different things from the staff. And so it is different in every case. I think the the trickiest balance to strike is between remembering that the principal, like they're the elected official, they're the boss, they make the decisions. That's what they were elected to do. And so, you know, you have to run the office and run the operation in a way that's consistent with who they are and what they want, the kind of, you know, political and personal um, like brand that they want to develop uh, and really have to let them, you know, lead the way. Senator Warner would find it funny that anybody would suggest that you have to let him lead the way, like he leads the way, whether you like it or not. But, but then at the same time, you know, they also, as you said, every they're all human. They all have, you know, blind spots, shortcomings, things they're, you know, good at, things they're less good at. And so you also have a responsibility in that role to help compensate for those things and help prevent you know, the office from solely becoming a vehicle for fulfilling whatever their kind of whims or needs are in the moment. And, you know, that's where I think congressional offices can really go astray, right, is when the members' own personal desires and wishes become all-consuming that all anybody in the team is worried about is like, what do they want right now? What's going to make them happy right now? And so... You know, I had the good fortune of, of, and have had the good fortune of working for people who really wanted that in a chief of staff, who, or, and in and in their, you know, their office staff in general. You know, people who had a lot of self awareness, who understood that, you know, there were moments that even they needed to be stopped and slowed down and and told, like, hey, we need to think this through a little bit. But but that is the trickiest balance to strike because because on some level, every principal needs that. And, you know, the best ones are the ones that kind of actively look for it. But even the, even the ones who, and those, those by and large are the folks that I've had the chance to work for, but even the ones who don't, you know, that's, that's really what you have to do. And, and, it, and to, to help them do their job well, and, and frankly, to keep everybody out of trouble. That's right. And, and, you know, even in a circumstance where that is what the member wants, and that's been communicated, and, you know, things are moving along in, in a good direction— in those moments where they want something that needs to be thought through or, right, wh- where the chief of staff has to be the resistor, that's not easy, right? Right. E- right? Even in the best of circumstances, disagreeing with the boss when they're clearly, you know, headed in a direction and really want something, putting the brakes on that idea and a process around it is hard. It is. It is. And like I say, it it 
it depends a lot on the member being willing to to hear that. You know, what I always used to say to everybody that I worked for, you know, was some version of in the you're the boss and in the end I'm going to do whatever you ask me to do. But in the meantime, just allow me to tell you why I think we should do this differently or this is a bad idea or whatever. And like I say, I've always had the good fortune of working for people who, even if they were pretty sure they were going to overrule me in the end, would stop and listen and like take on board what you were telling them and and ultimately they make a decision. But at the same time, you know, they all need to know that if they go the other way, if they tell you that, that they think they're right and you're wrong and this is how they want to do it, they have to have a lot of confidence that you're going to march forward and that the fact that you disagreed with the decision that they were making isn't going to influence in any way, like how you carry out the the decision or how you execute. Yep. All right. Let me ask you a follow-up question about Senator Warner, who is, is a true or false question. I have heard he is on the phone constantly. <laughs> he's on the phone constantly. <laughs> well, he's not on cell phones, Jim. You've probably heard that's that he right. That, of course. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, he, uh, I think he would be comfortable with me saying this. In the last year that I worked for him, 2020, it was a year of COVID. He was up for re-election. I believe I spoke to him on the phone every single day. My 40th birthday, Easter Sunday, I talked to him on the phone every single day. <laughs> and and a lot of other people probably could make the same claim. It is funny, though. Uh, I probably have never had a conversation with Senator Warner on the phone that lasted more than 10 minutes. Oh, wow. You know, he He has something he wants to talk to you about. He wants to check in. You get on the phone with him. You sort of do what you need to do. He's moving on to call the next person. Yeah. But that's know. something that I love about politics. And just to our point earlier about, you know, every member being different. Like there are some members that just need time by themselves to like read the material. Then they want to talk with the policy experts. There are other people who need to like, you know, engage all the time. That's how they do their learning is like by engaging a lot of different people and asking a lot of questions, et cetera, and one to another. And and there are, you know, 28 other different types of styles. Um, but that's what makes it fun and interesting because, you you know, you really don't know how members work until you are working closely with them. And some of them will want to, like you said, they'll want to read the material and then come in and ask questions. Some of them will just want you to brief them orally and then they'll ask questions. Some of them will want to, like, try out almost different ideas or different arguments. And so they'll kind of represent to you, this is what they believe. But really what they're doing is like testing it for themselves to see how it sounds and see if they really are there. And so you're absolutely right. They're all different. And the decision-making process is different for everybody. The When the decision-making process ends is different <laughs> for everybody. For some of them, it ends at a defined moment. For some of them, it kind of never ends. So... <laughs> Or it, or it ends when you hear the speech. Like, okay. <laughs> right. It's like once the vote is cast. That's what <laughs> um, let me also ask you about another member who you worked for uh, during your House days, and that was Patrick Kennedy. You know, and that's a very different scenario. We talked about, you know, members from, from red states and districts. He represented Rhode Island, blue district, blue state, um, and also a member of, you know, perhaps the most famous political family in American history. Um, and that comes with different challenges and opportunities. So how did you think about that as you were working for Congressman Kennedy? Uh, you're absolutely right about the fact that you know, he was a Kennedy. His father was Senator Kennedy. Um, brings a level of like expectation 
and pressure that is really hard to understand. I think when you're not right there, I think it's probably impossible for me to understand even, even having been there with him, um, unless you're, unless you're experiencing yourself, but you know, every time, you know, any of the Kennedys enters politics, I always on, on some level, um, have sympathy for it because the, you know, the expectations on them are, are just huge. And, and certainly that was the case for Patrick, you know, for Patrick, what he did that was, that was so wise, I think was really carved out a space that was his, and that was, you know, mental health issues. Yep. He cared about it passionately. Um, he worked tirelessly on mental health parity. And so, which we ultimately passed, uh, he ultimately passed in 2008, uh, when I was still working for him. And so, you know, he, I, I think in general, under Jim, I'd be interested in your perspective on this. I think for, you know, for most house members, until you're, until you're a chairman of a committee or the ranking member of a committee or a member of leadership, which, you know, back then used to take 30 years, you know, yep. there's like shortcuts to get there, but, um, you know, finding, like one or two issues that you can really own that you can develop leadership on over time is the way to be successful. You know, the, the folks who struggle, the ones who try to cover too much territory or who try to really make an impact on like big high profile issues that others are already kind of all over. And, you know, Patrick understood that he was like very early to the health IT conversation. And so had a lot of leadership there and, uh, and mental health. And then the, obviously the mental health issues as well. Um, but, you know, watching that up close, seeing, you know, the the way people sort of interacted with him because he was a Kennedy um, was really eye-opening. And uh, I have so much admiration for him for uh, for doing all of that. And, you know, he's been out of Congress now for 13 years. I think he retired in 2010. And, you know, was doing great, uh, still focused on all the same issues. Yeah, uh, his, his advocacy you know, has not slowed. I mean, the, no. the bill, I mean, the, the law he passed uh, with your help, I mean, it was a landmark piece of legislation. Um, and you're absolutely right about his focus and his commitment because he is, he's, you know, kept it going for, you know, a decade plus. Yeah. But it was different, you know, being in a, I will say being in a, this is my only experience ever really being in a truly blue district. And I'm going to be careful how I say this. Um, it can feel good. It can be comfortable. <laughs> exactly. So this is the thing. I will say, if you are from a very blue district, or probably if you're from a very red district too, I just have experience on the Democratic side, it's easy to get overconfident because whatever decisions you make, whatever sort of posture you take, is probably going to end up with you getting reelected. And you're going to be convinced that you were right all along. And so the margin for error in those kinds of districts or states is really pretty big. The margin for error for Sherrod Brown or John Tester is considerably smaller. It is actually important that they be right about their politics. And so it's not to say I don't don't have a lot of respect for the political judgment of, of uh, senators and House members from, from blue districts, but folks like Senator Tester, like Senator Brown, who continue to get reelected in really tough places. Um, that says something about them that's qualitatively different, and I would sort of follow them into political warfare basically any day. I, I completely agree with you. It is something that um, on a staff level and even at the member level isn't appreciated as much as it should be that 
folks who are surviving in those types of districts are just honed to a razor's edge, right? Because they wouldn't right. be there unless they had already passed so many daily tests. And you can, it is easy to, you know, think you're great at basketball if you're playing on a rim that is seven feet high, right? Just over and over again. And, and you may be actually fantastic at basketball, but big margins for error, right? You think you can do some things that if the basket were raised to that 10 foot level, you realize your skills perhaps aren't as sharp as those people who are playing at the 10 foot basket. Yeah. Um, and again, it's not to say that they don't have political skills. It's just, you know, practice makes perfect. And those folks in red and uh, states and districts are doing it every day, hour by hour. Agreed. Agreed. And, you know, as a party, I think we would do well to really go to school on how they do that. Yeah. Okay. So actually, let me just follow up with you on that. So what is a piece of advice that you would give to our party? Having, you know, been in these types of states and districts and done it successfully, what's something that, you know, our members, our party could or should be doing better, differently? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, not to repeat myself, but but I do think we sometimes fall in the trap of convincing ourselves that, you know, if you come from a really progressive background, that there's this sort of like huge unheard majority out there for like very progressive issues. And that if only we would be our authentic progressive selves, they would come out and carry us over the line in all these places. It would be so convenient if that were true. And I just have to believe that if it were true, we would have figured it out by now. You know, I think we, we, and like both parties do this, I'm, I'm sure, you know, can engage in a lot of magical thinking, you know, motivated reasoning, we call it, about yeah. how we can do the things we want to do and still have a lot of political success. And so, you know, the number one thing that I would say is, like I said, I think really going to school on the people that have had success in purple districts and purple states and understanding what it is they do. And for the record, I don't think that that necessarily comes down to just like being, quote unquote, moderate. And I don't know if Sherrod Brown would call himself uh, moderate. There have been years when he's had you know, one of the most progressive voting records in the Senate. So it's not so much about ideology, but it's about approach. He's doing something that has people in Ohio convinced that he's on their side. And I think really going to school on that would um, would do well for us. And then the other thing I'll say, and it's it's absolutely cliche and, and totally uninsightful to say it, but it's just so easy to get trapped in the in the echo chamber here in D.C. And we all just talk to each other and convince each other that we're right, convince each other how smart we are. And in the end, like the voters get to decide. And none of that's terribly insightful, but that's... No, look, that's helpful. And something that I want to um, also ask you about is, I mean, you worked at a very high level for members from a lot of different states, Alabama, which was your, you know, your home, but also Rhode Island, North Carolina, Virginia. You worked for people that knew their states and districts exceedingly well. But how did you as a staffer learn about those states, the political dynamics in those states. I know I did that one when I was chief of staff to Rush Holt. I'm not from New Jersey, but I had to learn about New Jersey. And it's, you know, it's people, it's towns, et cetera, what made them unique. How did you go about that process? One is just spend a lot of time in the district or in the state. Obviously, with Congressman Kramer, I had grown up there and, and was from there. But I traveled a lot when I was with Senator Hagan. Um, similarly traveled a lot. You know, Virginia is a little bit easier to travel to. It's you know right across the river. And so when I was with Senator Warner, spent time in Virginia as well. 
you know, it's it's when you work for Senator Warner, it's it's impossible not to ultimately understand Virginia. I mean, he was the governor of Virginia. He knows it inside and out. He will remind you of that. And so uh, just being around him uh, by osmosis, I think you develop an understanding of it. But I would say that, you know, taking my time in North, I went to college in North Carolina, but but beyond that, hadn't had any real exposure to North Carolina, certainly not politically. But like really trying to understand, you know, everything you can about the the state. I mean, when I was in the Hagan office, we developed a little, um, like a flip book of every county in North Carolina, 100 counties in North Carolina, every county. And we, you know, would like quiz the staff on it, be like, what's the biggest city? What are the biggest employers? Yada, yada, yada. Love it. And I love, I, North Carolina is an amazing state for politics. I loved it. It was so, it's so big, so diverse, so interesting. Um, but, you know, really getting down there and spending a lot of time. And, you know, the thing that you learn about all of these places in taking North Carolina as an example I think when when we in D.C. think about North Carolina, we think about Charlotte, and Bank of America, and the Triangle, and Research Triangle Park, Duke, and Chapel Hill. It's easy to forget. Like once you get outside of Raleigh and Charlotte, like you're in the deep south. And so, you know, even even a house district, you know, much smaller, is going to have a lot of diversity within it. Different politics, different economics, different cultural, you know, dynamics, um, and so. You know, really trying to understand that at a at an intuitive level is really important, but it's also the fun of it. That's one of the things I loved about doing these jobs is like really feeling like you understood, you know, learning how to pronounce all the cities that have weird pronunciations, and that's how they can tell outsiders is because they don't say it the right way. Yeah, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, I love that. Yeah. So I have heard that you have a superpower, and that is that you are one of the most organized people in Washington D.C. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> is is that true? And if so, how do you keep yourself organized? I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I don't know <laughs> if that's true. Uh, we're all like extremely familiar with our own faults and failings, and I'm definitely no different. Uh, I I am somebody who adopts new systems for maintaining like organization constantly, and you know we'll do them for a while and then stop doing it and then decide to do something else, and so. Uh, I, I actually have so much respect for people who are capable, my most recent boss, Secretary Raimondo, is this way, uh, who are capable of developing and maintaining over many years the same system for like organizing their work and their tasks. And um, that's never quite been me. Uh, but you know, I've had, I've had all kinds of different systems over the years, you know, like, you know, those long note cards that everybody carries around for a long time. Yeah. I was carrying those around, yes. scribbling notes on them, lists yeah. of things to do. Yeah. And then inevitably I'd have one and have like 25 things I needed to do today. And then I'd leave it at home when I went to work. And so <laughs> I'd have my wife like text me a picture of it, stuff like that. So I know I feel pretty disorganized, but, um, but I don't know, maybe other people are more disorganized than I am. All right. Well, let me ask you about uh, Secretary Raimondo, uh, because uh, as you said, that was your your most recent job in the Biden administration, where you were chief of staff at the secretary, uh, or rather at the um, Department of Commerce. Um, secretary Raimondo is a star of of the cabinet, and she has been asked to lead on some of the administration's most uh, important priorities. CHIPS Act is is one of several, but uh, also navigating competition with China, among others. Um, what should people know about her? Um, you know, what does she like to work with behind the scenes? 
The the first thing I'll share, and, and maybe the most important thing, is she's really an, a, just an exceptional human being. You know, she was great to work with every day, kind to me always, kind to the team. Uh, and so, as you know, that makes life a lot easier when you're in these jobs, um, is to work for somebody that you, um, you know, can feel good about working for. So she certainly had that from the very beginning. She is, look, she has a, she's a Rhodes Scholar and all of that. She has like a level of talent that, uh, you know, us mere mortals will, will, can only aspire <laughs> right. to. Uh, and so that's a good place to start. Um, but, you know, her ability to focus, you know, I learned a lot from her. I've learned a lot from every every one of the people that I've worked for. But, you know, her ability to focus, her ability to sort of ruthlessly and relentlessly spend her time in the places that she feels that she personally can have the biggest impact and, you know, maybe more importantly, to not spend time on areas where we're not going to move the ball or even if we do, it's not, you know, a real priority. It's so easy in these jobs to get pulled in a million different directions and people want you to do stuff all the time, help you with different things. You know, her ability to prioritize her own energy and her own time was really um, unbelievable. And I think has really contributed to how much success she's had in the administration. You know, she she wants to deliver for the president, for the administration. She knows that's her job. And she has a very clear sense for the areas where she's going to be able to do that. And I promise you, she spends probably 95% of her own time in those areas. And so, you know, a part of my job was then to to help take care of the other, everything else. You know, the things that... Um, needed to get done, things that needed to be covered, but, you know, maybe didn't to rise to the level of requiring her own personal time and attention. And so that that was a good division of labor, you know, definitely for us. Well, so here you were chief of staff uh, at Department of Commerce, tens of thousands of employees. You had previously worked uh, during the Obama administration in, in the White House, in the in the office of the U.S. Trade Representative. You know, commerce is a different animal. I mean, it's a huge organization. Um, and you know, Senate offices are large compared to House offices, but they're small. They're tiny right. <laughs> compared right. to the U.S. Department of Commerce. Um, how did you, you know, adapt your leadership uh, style? Yeah. Like, what what did you have to learn question. as a leader? Yeah, I I would recommend to anybody who is a, you know, on the Hill is a Senate chief of staff, you know, to try to go take at some point in your career a leadership job in an agency you know, not only doing legislative affairs, which is vital and important, but, you know, a sort of a management job on a big scale as well. Because I think personally, the biggest thing that I, in terms of my own skills, like gained from two years at the Department of Commerce is exactly what you just said. It's management at scale. Even in a Senate office, we had 50 people, you know, I knew all of them. Personally, I was intimately familiar with the work that they were doing. You know, nothing really happened in the office that you know, I and our legislative director, you know, our communications director didn't know about and kind of have our hands on. And in a 50,000 person federal bureaucracy, that's just not possible. And so having sort of systems for keeping track of the things you need to keep track of, having a sense for where things can go off the rails if you're not watching them closely, making sure you know sort of who the key people are. You know, we joked about the Department of Commerce. It's, it's an exceptional place and it's really a fascinating 
and fun agency. But, you know, it has a little bit of a broom closet dynamic. We joke that it's the place in the federal government where Congress puts things it doesn't know where else to put them. And so, you know, it has the Census Bureau, it has NOAA, which is the National Weather Service, it has NIST, which is a phenomenal uh, sort of hidden gem in the federal government. Uh, they run the export controls, the patent and trademark office, et cetera, et cetera. And so knowing sort of who the people are in those places that you can that you can trust, that you can um, get information from quickly, and that you can trust to keep you posted about things that have judgment enough to know, like what things need to be raised up to the secretary's attention or your attention, is really important. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing I you know, learned in the two years that I was there is just the extent to which, you know, when you're in a role in an organization like that, that is, that is fairly big and where you are fairly high profile, the extent to which people do sort of watch you more closely than you probably are comfortable with, but, you know, the importance of being sort of in the right frame of mind publicly all the time. You know, if you go into a big meeting, there are a lot of people in there, career folks, you know, perhaps that you don't know very well or folks who are, are coming out of the bureaus and, and haven't had a chance to see you, you know, the way you conduct yourself, the way you carry yourself, like all of that is going to matter in a way that in a, in a congressional office where everybody just knows each other so well, um, isn't quite, isn't quite the same. So there's like a performative aspect to it that is, that is different than, than what you would do on the Hill. And that's why I, I truly, I would encourage anybody to, to go do it. It was such a great experience and I, and I really enjoyed it, but that management management at that kind of scale is just a totally different beast. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, so now as you, as you reflect back on your career in public service, um, is there anything that you got to work on that you take particular pride in, you know, that you, you can say, yeah, it just feels really good to have helped do that. Yeah. So, you know, I had the good fortune of being around for things that were big and important. You know, of course, at Commerce, we, um, you know, we passed, helped to pass Congress to pass the CHIPS Act, and we were going to implement the CHIPS Act. They're hard at work implementing it as we speak. Uh, they're going to connect every American to high-speed internet using the $48 billion they got in the infrastructure bill as well. And so, had the chance to work on really big, important things. But, you know, if I think about one thing that I am more proud of than anything else, and I don't even take, I don't take credit for it personally. It, it was, it was really the effort of a staffer of ours. But when I worked in the, the Kay Hagen office, we worked closely with a guy named Jerry Ensminger, who was a former Marine Corps drill sergeant. And he had been stationed at Camp Lejeune, Lejeune uh, they can't, they can, they keep changing the pronunciation of it, but I think we're supposed to say Lejeune as opposed to Lejeune. He had been stationed at Camp Lejeune and he had a little girl who um, developed leukemia and died uh, when she was seven years old. Janie, it was her name. And, you know, he came to find out years later that the water at Camp Lejeune had been contaminated during the time that he was there. And so Jerry, uh, really an exceptional person, made it just his personal mission to like write the injustice for the many thousands of families who had been impacted by the contaminated water. And so Senator Hagan really took that up uh, along, of course, with Senator Burr. Uh, and, you know, we're able to get 
legislation passed providing health care for all the people who were stationed at Camp Lejeune and their families during, you know, those many years when the water was contaminated. In the time since then, um, since I left the Hagen office, they've also got um, a fund for monetary compensation for those people. And so, you know, you think about all the people that are impacted and that is meaningful. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you have the ability occasionally in politics to really get to know these specific people. And I just think about Jerry and all of the years that he put into that fight, all of the sort of personal um, capital that he invested in it over so many years. And so, you know, being able to help on some small part, like deliver that for him was just really meaningful. And, you know, I think I tell people this all the time about working on the Hill or working in politics is it's so many days are just like banging your head against the wall. And, you know, you can work for weeks or months, sometimes maybe even years, and not really feel like you're moving the ball all that much, especially if you're in the minority. But like once in a blue moon, you do get the opportunity to work on things where you can really see that you're having an impact on people's lives in a meaningful way. And that one has just always stuck out for me, uh, mostly because of Jerry. Yeah, uh, it's a beautiful story. And you're right. Like that is that what that is what makes it all worth it when you can um, achieve a, a change in the law um, that directly affects lots of people, you know, to the betterment of their lives. And along the way, you, you know, you work with people who will just blow you away. And, and sometimes it's, it is, you know, the result, like the, that the initiating event is heartbreak, right? But that something you can be a part of having something good come out of that awful situation is, you know, that's what life is about. It's it's the best part of working in this business. Definitely, definitely. Okay, so I, I like to ask um, a couple of, of recurring questions to my guests. Um, the first one I have for you is, can you tell me about a time when you made a mistake, uh, what happened, and what'd you learn from it? Yeah, uh, I, I saw this question in the notes and I, uh, I thought about it a little bit. You know, I'm too arrogant of a person to really acknowledge huge mistakes, I guess. <laughs> but no, what I, what I, uh, I have always prided myself on a little bit of like emotional detachment from the work itself, which is to say, you know, I have a, in any role, you have a job to do. And sometimes that job is going to bring you into conflict with other people um, or, you know, competition with other people. And that's just the way it goes. And there's no reason to make it personal. There's no reason to be like extremely emotional about it. I always like respected the people the most who even in the moments of like most intense sort of like policy conflict or political conflict, you know, you could just have an honest and open conversation with. And so when I think about a situation, like my skin crawls even just to think about this, I, you know, and I'm not going to use names here, but uh, in my most recent job, I, you know, was in one of those situations and which, you know, uh, I was like sort of in conflict or, you know, had a really just a procedural disagreement with somebody working somewhere else in the government that um, uh, that I know very well, a, a woman who I've worked with for years and years and years. Jim, you know her too, like one of these uh, tour off, I'll, I'll tell you who it was. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, we're on the phone and somehow, some way, the conversation just got really, really heated. And... I, even as I was talking to her, I remember thinking to myself, I can't believe this is happening right now, you know, but I was just so angry. She was obviously very angry. I think we were both under a lot of pressure. 
a lot of things were said that I think we probably both didn't mean and regretted. <laughs> and even just thinking about it now, I'm kind of ashamed. And I hung up the phone and was like, well, clearly I'm never going to be able to speak to her again. <laughs> because <laughs> we have a combination of anger and embarrassment. And I just, you know, I really try hard to never be that person uh, who takes things personally. And so, I don't know, she probably felt exactly the same way. And then, you know, uh, it was clear that in that situation, somebody was going to have to be the bigger person. It's obvious in retrospect that uh, I don't have it in me to do that. And so maybe a week or two <laughs> later, I got a text from her that was basically like, hey, can we get drinks and be friends again? And oh, so we did. And so um, uh, what I would say I learned from it is it's like, you don't have to be right or wrong or acknowledge you're right or wrong to just like bury the hatchet and move on. I remember what we were disagreeing about to this day. I'm convinced I was right about it. I sure she feels the same way. Um, but God bless her for being like such an adult to just kind of like propose that we move on. And, you know, she's like a real friend. And so, uh, so I appreciate that. So by the first thing I learned from it is like, don't ever put yourself in that position. There's no reason to take any of this stuff personally. We all just have a job to do. Everybody's just trying to do their job the best they can. Um, but if you ever slip up and allow yourself to get maybe just a little too emotionally attached, just, you know, find it within yourself to be the bigger person and move on. It's such, I mean, that is such good advice. We have all been there. Um, you know, and in part, like these jobs are very high stress. We're exhausted. You know, you don't eat very well while you're, you know, like all these, your body is going through these a strenu a strenuous uh, situation. And even when people are disciplined and it's not in their nature, sometimes you lose your temper. And totally. you're you're so right. And I'm glad that you received grace because you deserve it. And I hope all who are listening um, practice that as well, um, if it happens to them, because exactly. it probably will in this business. I have two last questions. One, I want to just ask you about your current job. You know, you are currently senior vice president and head of public affairs at Clear. Tell me what you're working on today and, and how the transition's going. Yeah, it's going well. So, you know, I was in government for 18 years, and this has been my first uh, job outside of government since, you know, I was a teacher, since I was a high school teacher. And, you know, as you can imagine, Jim, I'm sure you did too, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about how to make that transition, talking to people about it. You know, my intention was always to, to you know, sort of be consistently in government for as long as I was going to do government. And I always had an interest in sort of learning the business world as well. And so wanted to eventually make that move and, you know, without the expectation that, you know, I'll like jump back and forth between government and the private sector as some people do. And so I really wanted to land in a place that, you know, I felt like was interesting with good people, people that I could learn a lot from and, you know, that was growing that I could grow with as well. And, you know, Clear is a great company for that. It's run by uh, really great people, passionate people who've been doing it for a long time. It's an interesting uh, line of work. You know, in, in our shop in public affairs, we are responsible for federal government relations, state and local government relations. You know, as you know, probably Clear is, you know, active in 54 airports around the country. And many of those are, you know, owned by municipalities, and airports authorities. And so the sort of state and local government piece is really important uh, and communications uh, as well. And so uh, it's, so the transition has been great. I will say, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to people about what would be different about being in the private sector and, and, you know, much of the stuff that they told me is true. Those are you know things that I, I think I was more or less 
prepared for. Uh, the one thing I will say about the transition has less to do with my current job than, than just, you know, coming out of government. Um, so many people told me in all my years in government, when you leave government, you're going to find out who your friends are. And we've all heard versions of that, right? Yeah. That like, <clears throat> I have a good friend who always says like, when, you know, when you leave government, like the silence is definite. All the people <laughs> who used to call you all the time or reach out to you all the time because they thought you could, they, you know, you could do something for them. Suddenly they're not that interested in being your friends anymore. I've had precisely the opposite experience. That's which fantastic. Is maybe I was so prepared for that, that all the people who are still like, will return your calls or still reach out to you and, hey, let's get a drink. It's like always a pleasant surprise to realize, oh, these people are real friends. You know, it wasn't yeah. always just transactional. So uh, I've really appreciated that. But um, no, you know, like at, at uh, you know, Clear, we have a, um, obviously we're well known for what we do in the, in the airports and there's plenty of work to do around that, both at the federal and state and local level. You know, the company uh, has an identity through verification platform as well, or partnered with LinkedIn you know, Avis, other, other partners in the, in that space. And, you know, that's an, an opportunity for an enormous amount of growth, just acquired a, a KYC, know your customer fintech company. And so, you know, for us who do policy uh, in the company, it, it's, it's a really diverse sort of big set of issues that we get the opportunity to, to help track and, and help the company think through. And so um, that's been really exciting, but mo for the most part, mostly I would say it's just been an enormous learning opportunity for me. You know, the private sector and government have very different cultures, which isn't to say one's better or, or, or not, um, but very, very different. And so, you know, getting my feet under me on that side uh, has been has been great. It's been about six months. Oh, that's great. Well, this is not a bid for advertising dollars, but I am a customer and I love zooming ahead at the airport line. So, I love it. I love um, it. Okay, my last question for you. Um, if I were able to raise the money and get the permitting for a Hall of Fame to staffers and put it on the National Mall, who would you nominate for the Stafford Hall of Fame and why? Putting the Stafford Hall of Fame on the mall really puts a lot of a lot of pressure on it. It is. This is a oh. high stakes question. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna mention somebody that I worked with in the Biden administration. And if you haven't had her as a guest on the podcast, you absolutely should. I'm sure you know her as well. Susie George, who is yes, the chief of staff right. of the Department of State. Um, you are so right. I haven't, and I should. You absolutely should. I will say that she's 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 really just a, a, a phenomenal um, person and, and staff person. Uh, the the two the two things I'll, I'll just say about Susie um, are one, you know, you could tag even today. I've you know been out of government for six months. I, you know, you could text her something; she'll get right back to you. And then you'll turn on the TV and see that like Tony Blinken's meeting with like Sergey Lavrov and you know, <laughs> Geneva or whatever, you know, uh, the ability to be responsive to people, including a lot of people who are like lower on the proverbial food chain than you all the time is just a rare quality and people don't forget it. So uh, Susie deserves a lot of um a lot of credit for that. But, you know, we also used to Gina Raimondo is a really, uh, really like. As I said, a really great person. She always will like hype you up and make you feel good about yourself. And so she'd always, uh, you know, say to me or around people, she's like, Mike's the best chief of staff in the whole in the whole administration. Like Mike's really great. And I'd be like, Oh, come on, that's not true. And she would be like, Oh no, Mike, it's totally true. Come on, who who do you think could possibly be better than you? 
And I'd say like, well, I think Susie George is better than me. And she, even Ramondo would be like, okay, well, that's probably true. But everybody else. <laughs> it's a real tip of the so cap, right though. So that Susie goes in the Hall of Fame for me. You should absolutely have her on. Sitting here at 43 years old, I would listen to that uh, episode just for what I could learn uh, from it. So uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pitch her on it for you. Excellent. Thank you. That is a an outstanding um, nomination. Um, Mike, I have just so enjoyed talking with you today. I have admired um, what you've done over many years with your career. And I can't wait for people to listen to this episode um, for what you've shared and your authenticity. Um, I wish you the best of luck in, in the new role. And thank you uh, for spending all this time with us today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and I really appreciate it and appreciate that you do this. Oh, my pleasure. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.